0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to the February 27th edition of the WorkConf Academy Weekly News. I'm Renee Folsner, an attorney with the Floyd Scarin Law Firm. Thanks for joining us today. So let's get started with our litigation report. A WCAB panel ruled that an interpreter must show evidence of the interpreter fees in the same geographical area in addition to their own customary charges. In order to establish the market rate supporting payment of their bill. In this case, Robert Caballero Cruz was a dishwasher at Benu LLC, DBA, Monsieur Benjamin, in the San Francisco area when he injured his chest and abdomen. After the case was resolved by a compromise and release, Bay Area Interpreting filed a petition for costs the unpaid balance of $75 for translating at the signing of the settlement agreement along with a claim for interest, attorney fees, and costs. After two days of trial on the cost petition, the Warcom judge ruled that the interpreter did not meet her burden of proof of market rate, entitling her to additional payment for her services, and denied the petition for costs, penalties, interests, and attorney fees. And reconsideration was denied in the panel decision of Cruz versus Benue LLC DBA Mansoor Benjamin. The interpreter has the burden of proving that the fees charged were reasonable, and according to the regulations, must establish the market rate for the interpreter's services. To determine the reasonableness of an interpreter's services, the WCAB has looked. At the factors outlined in the 2002 en banc case of Kuntz versus Patterson floor coverings which include the usual fee accepted not charged by the provider the usual fee accepted by other medical providers in the same geographical area other aspects of the economics of the medical providers practice that are relevant and any unusual circumstances in the case Here the interpreter submitted approximately 40 invoices for various interpreting services performed in the same time frame, but all of these were only from Bay Area interpreting. It did not submit any evidence of the usual fee accepted by other interpreters at the same geographical area, and thus failed to establish the market rate for her services. Since the employer timely paid the undisputed portion of the invoice and contested the remaining balance, there was no basis to award costs and attorney fees. And the U.S. Supreme Court denied Johnson & Johnson's appeal of a case that required it to pay $302 million in penalties to the state of California for deceptive marketing of pelvic mesh implants that can cause serious pain and physical damage to women, j and subsidiary Ethicon has manufactured, marketed, and sold these pelvic mesh products intended to treat two conditions that can affect women: stress urinary incontinence (SUI) and pelvic organ prolapse. Since the late 1990s. In 2008, the FDA alerted healthcare providers about complications from these pelvic mesh implants. And in 2011, the FDA issued an update to its public health notification. Then in 2012, the FDA ordered Ethicon to conduct post-market surveillance studies for some of its devices. But instead of conducting these post-market surveillance studies, Ethicon stopped selling the products commercially. Yet its competitors continued to sell the pelvic mesh products. Then by 2019, the FDA concluded there is not a reasonable assurance of safety and effectiveness for any commercially available pelvic mesh products and ordered all remaining manufacturers to stop selling and distributing these products. During this time frame, Ethicon disseminated three categories of communications, giving rise to violations at issue in this case. Instructions for use, marketing communications directed to California doctors, and marketing communications directed to California patients. The California Attorney General filed an enforcement action against Johnson & Johnson on behalf of the people of State of California in 2016. The case stemmed from a multi-state investigation into Ethicon Incorporated marketing of its pelvic mesh devices. The lawsuit requested civil penalties of $2,500 for each unfair competition law violation and civil penalties of $2,500 for each false advertising law violation. After a nine-week bench trial, the trial court issued an extremely thorough 128-page statement of decision finding that Ethicon was liable for 153,351 unfair competition law violations and 121,844 false advertising law violations. This resulted in nearly $344 million in civil penalties after which Johnson & Johnson and Ethicon appealed. Ultimately, the California Court of Appeal decided that substantial evidence supported these findings regarding Ethicon's written market communications, but not its oral marketing communications, in its April 2022 published decision of the people of the state of California versus Johnson & Johnson. The judgment was modified and the civil penalties were reduced from about $344 million to $302 million. Then the U.S. Supreme Court denied Johnson & Johnson's petition for a writ of certiorari on February 21, 2023. Johnson & Johnson had argued that state consumer protection laws like California's are too vague, exposing companies to unpredictable state lawsuits. Johnson & Johnson said the Supreme Court's rejection of their case will lead to continued uneven, unclear, and unfair enforcement that harms consumers and businesses. And in employment law litigation, the Supreme Court of the United States clarified the Fair Labor Standards Act salary basis test for a highly paid worker who would be exempt from overtime pay. The justices cited six to three with an oil rig supervisor who sued his employer for overtime pay, even though his daily rate already earned him a quarter million dollars a year. This worker, Michael Hewitt, worked for Helix Energy Solutions Group as a tool pusher on an offshore oil rig. He oversaw various aspects of the rig's operations and supervised 12 to 14 workers and typically worked 12 hours a day, seven days a week or 84 hours a week during a 28 day hitch. He then had 28 days off before reporting back to the vessel. Helix paid Hewitt on a daily rate basis over the course of his employment from $963 to $1,341 per day, and his paycheck amounted to his daily rate times the number of days he had worked, with no overtime compensation. Under that compensation scheme, Helix paid Mr. Hewitt over $200,000 a year. In in 2017, Helix fired Mr. Hewitt for performance issues, and Hewitt responded by filing a lawsuit against his employer for overtime pay under the Fair Labor Standards Act of 1938, which guarantees overtime pay to covered employees when they work more than 40 hours a week. Helix claimed that Mr. Hewitt was exempt from the FLSA because he qualified as a bona fide executive and was compensated on a salary basis. The trial court agreed with the employer and granted the company summary judgment. But the Court of Appeals for the Fifth Circuit sitting on banc reversed. And the decision of the Court of Appeals was just affirmed by the U.S. Supreme Court in the case of Helix Energy Solutions Group, Incorporated v. Hewitt. The Fair Labor Standards Act of 1938, FLSA, guarantees that covered employees receive overtime pay when they work more than 40 hours a week. But an employee is not covered and so is not entitled to overtime compensation if he works in a bona fide executive, administrative, or professional capacity, as those terms are defined by regulations. An employee is considered a bona fide executive excluded from the FLSA's protections if the employee meets three distinct tests. And one of these three is that the salary basis test, which is the salary basis test, which requires that an employee receive predetermined and fixed salary that does not vary with the amount of time worked. So the question here was whether a high-earning employee is compensated on a salary basis when his paycheck is based solely on a daily rate so that he receives a certain amount if he works one day in one week, twice as much for two days, three times as much for three days, and so on. The U.S. Supreme Court concluded that Mr. Hewitt was not paid on a salary basis and thus is entitled to overtime pay. And now our crime report. Former NBA players Keon Dooling and Alan Anderson were sentenced to 30 months and 24 months respectively in prison for their roles in a scheme to defraud the National Basketball Association Players Health and Welfare Benefit Plan. And their co-defendant Terrence Williams, who orchestrated the scheme to defraud the plan, has pled guilty and is awaiting sentencing. The plan is a health care plan providing benefits to eligible active and former players of the NBA. Williams, Dooling, and Anderson recruited other former NBA players to defraud the plan by offering to provide them with false invoices to support their fraudulent claims from a chiropractic office in California run by a codifendant Patrick Kazarian aka Dr. Pat. Kazarian pled guilty to conspiracy to commit healthcare fraud and was sentenced to 30 months in prison on February 7, 2023. In addition, Williams obtained fraudulent invoices from a dentist affiliated with dental offices in Beverly Hills run by codifendant Amir Wahab, from a doctor at a wellness office in Washington State. The scandal enmeshed 17 other ex-NBA players, including former Lakers guard Shannon Brown and former Clippers players Darius Miles, Glenn Davis, Reuben Patterson, and Sebastian Telfair. The fraud began when Williams submitted a false $19,000 invoice in 2017 that looked like a legitimate claim from Kazarian's office. The claim was billed to the NBA player's health and welfare benefit plan and netted him nearly $7,700. Williams recruited more players with the help of Dueling and another former NBA player, Allen Anderson. In many instances, GPS location information and documentary evidence such as flight records showed that the patients were not even located in the vicinity of the service providers on the dates the invoices stated they received medical or dental services. Dooling received about $363,000 in fraudulent reimbursements, and other defendants received about $194,000 from the fraudulent uh, proceeds of the plan. Anderson himself submitted about $121,000 in fraudulent claims. Anderson is also responsible for recruiting and re, uh, facilitating the fraud of additional defendants who sought about $710,000 in fraudulent claims. And in regulatory news, state lawmakers proposed five hundred. dollars New bills on 2023 sessions introduction deadline, bringing the total number of proposed new laws in California to about 2,600 of them for the year. And according to veteran capital lobbyists, that's the most new laws proposed in California in more than a decade. Last year, when about 2,000 bills were introduced, the legislature passed almost 1,200 of them and nearly 1,000 became law after they were signed by the governor. Workers' rights are the focus of several bills, including SB 497, which strengthens protections for workers from retaliation by employers, and SB 525, which revives the effort to increase the minimum wage for some healthcare workers to $25 an hour. And it started what some are calling the fast food fight, with a landmark law to regulate wages and working conditions in the fast food industry, which is now on hold until voters decide its fate in November 2024. Each year, the California Chamber of Commerce releases a list of job killer bills to identify legislation that it says will decimate economic and job growth in California. The Cal Chamber tracks the bills throughout the rest of the legislative session, and works to educate legislatures about the serious consequences of these bills and what it will cause to the state the california chamber of commerce announced the first job killer bill for 2023 on february 14th it is sbx 1-2 what is which is called a windfall profits tax it sets an arbitrary cap on the amount of profits that a refiner operating in the state of California can earn. According to the Chamber of Commerce, this measure would further diminish supply, discourages operational efficiencies, and would limit the amount of capital a refiner could reinvest into their infrastructure to support California's long-term climate goals. In 2022, the California Chamber of Commerce identified 19 job-killer bills. But just two of the bills identified as job-killers passed the legislature in 2022, and both were signed by the governor. Section 111 of the Medicare, Medicaid, and SCHIP Extension Act of 2007, that's known as the MMSEA, added mandatory reporting requirements that applied to liability insurance companies, self-insurance plans, no-fault insurance, and workers' compensation providers. And these non-group health plan reporting entities have been waiting for over a decade for clarification on when and how the civil monetary penalties for non-compliance with Section 111 reporting guidelines will be assessed. The proposed rule that was to specify how and when CMS miscalculate and impose civil monetary penalties was published on February 18th back in 2020. However, on February 17th, 2023, CMS announced that they will be extending the time for publication of their final rule for one additional year or until February 18th, 2024. It said that additional data analysis and predictive modeling needs to be done to better understand the economic impact of the rule on different insurer types. And according to an article on this topic written by attorney and former nurse Ciara Koba, one of the nation's foremost authorities on Medicare mandatory insurer reporting, she said this undoubtedly allowed responsible reporting entities to take a breath and focus on continuing to improve and streamline its processes to ensure they are compliant. She pointed out that if a provider failed to report 100 claims for a period of 90 days, the proposed penalty could reach a staggering $9 million without even accounting for the inflationary daily penalty, which would be closer to $1,200 per day per claim. She went on to say that it is important for responsible reporting entities to pay close attention to any guidance that CMS distributes and take this extra year to implement any necessary improvements to Section 111 reporting systems and processes. The U.S. Attorney's Office for the Northern District of California has implemented the new United States Attorney's Office Voluntary Self-Disclosure Policy. The policy, which is effective immediately, details the circumstances under which a company will be considered to have made a voluntary self-disclosure of misconduct to a United States Attorney's Office. And it provides transparency and predictability to companies and the defense bar concerning the concrete benefits and potential outcomes in cases where companies voluntarily self-disclose misconduct, fully cooperate, and timely and appropriately remediate. The goal of this new policy is to standardize how voluntary self-disclosure is defined and credited nationwide and to incentivize companies to maintain effective compliance programs capable of identifying misconduct, to expeditiously and voluntarily disclose and remediate misconduct, and to cooperate fully with the government in corporate criminal investigations. Under the new Voluntary Self-Disclosure Policy, a company is considered to have made a voluntary self-disclosure if, It becomes aware of misconduct by employees or agents before that misconduct is publicly reported or otherwise known to the Department of Justice and discloses all relevant facts known to the company about the misconduct to a U.S. Attorney's Office in a timely fashion. A company that voluntarily self-discloses and fully meets the other requirements of the policy will receive significant benefits including that the U.S. Attorney's Office will not seek a guilty plea, may choose not to impose any criminal penalty, and in any event will not impose a criminal penalty that is greater than 50% below the low end of the United States Sentencing Guidelines fine range. And even if a guilty plea is ultimately required, the company will still receive the other benefits under the voluntary self-disclosure policy. And in medical news, California faces a statewide shortfall for primary care providers. And mid-range forecasts indicate the state would need about 4,700 additional primary care clinicians in 2025 and about 4,100 additional primary care clinicians in 2030 to meet the expected demand. One of the top recommendations to solve this problem from the California Health Workforce Commission, after it spent a year looking at how to improve California's ability to meet healthcare workforce demands, was to allow full practice authority for nurse practitioners. The California legislature responded in 2020 by passing AB 890, which was signed by Governor Newsom. This law created two new categories of nurse practitioners that can function within a defined scope of practice without standardized procedures. One is Nurse Practitioner 103, that works in a group setting with at least one physician and surgeon within the population focus of their national certification. Then there's the more advanced Nurse Practitioner 104, who may work independently within the population focus of their national certification. The new law required the California Board of Registered Nursing to pass implementation regulations before the law would go into full effect. And now, regulatory language to implement AB 890 went into effect January 1, 2023. All nurse practitioners who wish to practice under this new law must apply to the Board of Registered Nurses for a special certification before they can do so, as this new authority is not automatically granted to all nurse practitioners in California on January 1st. The law requires a licensee to first work as a 103 nurse practitioner in good standing for at least three years prior to becoming a 104 nurse practitioner. Consequently, the board is only able to certify 103 nurse practitioners at this time and will not be able to certify 104 nurse practitioners until at least 2026. There are an estimated 20,000 nurse practitioners who will be eligible to apply for the first phase of the expanded authority. Nurse practitioners who meet the requirements for either pathway under AB 890 will have the authority to conduct an advanced assessment, order, perform, and interpret diagnostic procedures, order diagnostic radiological procedures, and utilize the findings or results in treating a patient, establish primary and differential diagnoses, certify disability after a physical examination, delegate tasks to a medical assistant, and prescribe, order, administer, dispense, procure, and furnish therapeutic measures including controlled substances, among other pharmacological and non-pharmacological interventions. The legislation elevates the need to re-examine intersecting statutes, regulations, payer policies, and clinical agency interpreters. Interprofessional team structures, healthcare finance, and employment relationships, and align them to fully realize the goals and intent of AB 890. And the California Labor Code authorizes nurse practitioners functioning pursuant to standardized procedures and acting under the supervision and the review of a physician and surgeon to provide medical treatment in the Workers' Compensation Insurance Program. But This provision needs to be modified in order to take advantage of this new nurse practitioner law. And that is all of our news and events for this week. Please check our website daily for news updates, past editions of our news, and much, much more. And remember, you can subscribe to our weekly news podcasts and special reports using your iPhone, your iPad, or your Android device by searching for the WorkComp Academy, with your podcast software. And we also publish our daily news, our podcast, and our other utilities on our free WorkCompApps.com smartphone app. Again, I'm Renee Fols with Lloyd Skarin, Manukian, and Langevin. Thanks for joining us today. Please drop by again next week for more news.